hear God's word to you this morning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love that you heal the sick and the blind. You raise the fallen, you cheer the faint. Lord, you, even in this passage, uh, show all that we have a hope for, the great renewal of all things. When uh, we will be uh, beyond the reach of sin and sickness. And yet, Lord, like this blind man, we are here waiting for you to come and to heal us. And so we pray even this morning that your words and your spirit would do that work in us. Lord, in the places where we have given up hope, we pray that you would enter and powerfully show us your kindness. And so, Lord, I pray for these things and especially that you would do them through my words. Uh, Because you love this congregation, I pray that you would do it for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, about 12 years ago, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Uh, I remember I was in the Seattle area at the time, and uh, it was a tragic event. If you followed it all, if you remember it, half the city was underwater for weeks. Uh, thousands of homes were destroyed because they were just soaking in the floodwaters. In fact, uh, there's a lot of stories of uh, alligators and sharks actually swimming through the city streets because the water had just stayed there for so long. The poorest of the city were hit the worst because they couldn't evacuate. They had no cars. Uh, 2,000 people died in the hurricane. Uh, one of the worst natural disasters in our history uh, of recent years. Uh, but I was never really affected by it. It didn't, didn't really hit me at all. Uh, being up here in Seattle, I felt fairly distant to it. It didn't really sink in. I knew it was bad. I knew it should feel bad, but I didn't really. It was far away. Uh, now, for some of you, I know that it was actually a very meaningful event. Some of you have connections with that city, or you've lived there, or you spent time there, or you have family, perhaps, in Louisiana, and you know the travesty that it was. That never really sank in for me until we moved to St. Louis. And I worked in a restaurant, and the head chef had fled for his life from Hurricane Katrina. He left everything he had behind and ended up in St. Louis. In fact, living there, I met person after person after person who had fled and had to start over. That was when it began to sink in for me. Uh, One really foolish Christian preacher uh, must have felt moved when he watched what happened because, uh, and apparently didn't know what to do with it, because in the whole uh, aftermath, he declared that the hurricane came on New Orleans in order to stop a gay pride parade that had been planned for that weekend. 
That was an embarrassing moment to be a Christian. Was that true also for the many lovely Christians in that city who died? Is that why the hurricane came? Uh, after all, there's many, many cities who have gay pride parades every year and do not have hurricanes that come. It turns out that it's actually not so simple. Uh, in fact, most of us wish it was just so simple, but it clearly is not. Still, the question remains, what do we do when we see tragedy, when we are confronted with suffering? And I think this is actually a place we all struggle. We struggle in relation to other people's sufferings. We struggle in relation to our own. The Van Ords uh, mentioned to me that this passage has been uh, an anchor for them in their own long and difficult season. And um, this passage, John 9, is one of the richest passages in the New Testament talking about God's relationship to suffering, to evil, him healing, him breaking in and making things new. That's what the, the miracle is. It's Jesus announcing, I am remaking the world. I am healing people and I'm going to heal all of you. Someday. <clears throat> but if I were to try and share everything in this passage, we'd be here way too long. So I'm going to focus in particular on what I was struck by in this passage. And that was actually the relational dynamics in this passage. Uh, we will see this in this passage. Everyone in this passage is well aware of this man's blindness. They all know it very well. And yet, no one rejoices with him. Not a single person rejoices with him. The point today is that they could not rejoice with him because they refused. They were afraid to enter into his suffering and his grief. And so they were unable to rejoice with him. They felt too guilty, I'm sure. And, you know, I think most of us find ourselves in the same place. Just last week, I, uh, I myself... Watch someone struggling in the middle of a service, and I felt afraid and paralyzed. I didn't know what to do in that moment. What do I do? Do I walk up to them? Do I talk to them? Do they want me to? We don't know how to enter in. So that's the question I want to ask this morning. How does the gospel enable us to not be afraid of suffering, but to actually enter into it? And I think, I think actually all of you want this. I think you want to be freed, to know how to enter into other people's lives. And so I think this passage has a lot of richness for us as well. But I will say, even in asking that question, I know some of you uh, are already taking shorter breaths, right? And your shoulders perhaps have raised a few inches and you're beginning to feel tense. I do not mean, first off, that we are responsible to enter into every person's suffering in all of Bellingham. I certainly don't mean that we're responsible to fix it. In fact, it's the opposite. Uh, but there are people in our lives, people whom we are close to, whom we have kept at arm's length because we are terrified of their suffering. My question is, how do we enter into the suffering that is nearby us, that the Lord has already brought into our small community? And so we're going to take this in three moves, three questions. First, how do we typically respond to suffering? What's our gut reaction? And we see a lot of that in this passage. Secondly, how does Jesus respond? And in light of that, how does the gospel transform our suffering. So first, how do we typically respond when we are confronted with suffering? The answer is that we resist connecting with people who are suffering. We resist connecting. There's something deep inside of us. We don't have to think about it. We instantaneously recognize that this person is not going to be immediately beneficial to us. 
Or they might even challenge us in ways that we really don't want to be challenged and we don't have the time for, perhaps. We do this with other people's suffering. We actually, friends, we do this with our own. And there's three ways in this passage I want to pull out. And the first is uh, blame. Blame is often the first way that we resist connecting. Look at verse 2. The disciples say this. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we'll talk about the relationship between sin and evil later. But here, we need to notice that Jesus tells them that they got it all wrong. Look at verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. That is to say, no. Uh Uh-uh. You guys are on the wrong track. Rather, it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, we do the same thing, the disciples do, but in much subtler ways. Every time, uh, both in Missouri and in Washington, that our family would get a new foster placement, often the first question uh, given to us was uh, when people would see our new child, they would say, oh, so what happened? Were the parents on drugs? Um, And that comes from noticing the tragedy that this child is going through, that this child has been removed from their home and they are at a loss right now. But whether the parents did drugs or they simply didn't have money to pay the bills actually doesn't matter does it? Because here's what's happening. We are asking that question actually to look past the child in order to kind of explain the situation so we will feel a little less uncomfortable with it. What really matters in that moment is actually the child itself or the person who's suffering. But when we blame, we're looking to remove some of the sting that we are beginning to feel. And so we avoid connection by searching for someone to blame or something. Second way is uh, ignoring or avoiding. And that's actually the biggest chunk of this passage. We ignore or avoid the suffering person to avoid connection. Let me read verses 8 through 11 in this passage. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It's he. Others said, No, he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Uh, It begins by talking about his neighbors and those who had passed him by. They all know him as a beggar. That is to say, if you ask them about him, they would say, oh yeah, oh, oh, that's the guy who begs on uh, Northwestern Birchwood. Yeah, we know him. We pass by him all the time. We know exactly who he is. He's there every day. Yep. That is to say, he had become part of the wallpaper. They were entirely accustomed to ignoring him. And so when it comes time to listen to him, they don't do any better. Look at verse 9. It says uh, that he kept saying, I am the man. That is to say, he had to continue to tell them over and over, I am the man. Don't... Listen to me. I am the one who was blind. They were so calcified in ignoring him that he has to insist over and over. So when they finally do listen, their response is astonishing. Look at verses 12 through, 20, uh, through 14 here. So they said to him, well, where is he? Where is this Jesus? He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees. The man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That is to say, uh, they do the exact opposite of what we'd expect them to do. You're, You're the blind beggar? 
Jesus healed you? Like, oh, Lord, that is fantastic. That's amazing. Let's go and worship. Like, praise God. That is missing. What do they do instead? Oh, Jesus healed you. You know, he's, he's kind of a figure of controversy. I don't think I want to be involved in that controversy anymore. You know what we do with people who are controversial? We send them to the Pharisees because we want to stay as far away from your mess as possible. His parents actually are no better. Uh, let's look at verses 18 through 23. So uh, we're skipping the initial contact with the Pharisees. Halfway through, they, the Jews, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and he was born blind, but how he, sees, how he now sees, we don't know, and uh, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Here's my question. Where in the world have these parents been the whole time? Who among you, if you had a blind child, would cast them out of your house to become beggars? Where have they been? It's apparent, it's apparent that they were so calloused by his suffering that it didn't affect them anymore. And so they were happy to have him go out and beg. They were happy to let him hang out to dry. And so when they show up to the trial, it's no surprise that they act the way they do. They are desperate the entire time to keep themselves out of the line of fire. So instead of reinforcing his testimony, they stay hands off and play dumb. Well, I don't know who, who healed him. I, well, how, we don't know. How did they miss it? The man said it over and over. It's not that they missed it. They chose to miss it. They chose to ignore their son year after year. Because frankly, it was just too threatening. It was just too scary. It was what they are accustomed to do, apparently. We're prone, friends, we are prone to ignore and avoid in the same ways when we keep it light and chatty and shallow and, hey, you know, I know you're having a hard time, but let's, let's ignore that and let's just talk about something nice. Praying for you, all the while failing to see the person we're talking to. Failing to actually hear them and be affected by them. To know them in their pain. And now, a painfully common way to do this, and thank you, I love you as a church. This is not something that happens a lot here. But a very painfully common way to do this is to tell people who are suffering God is sovereign and He works all things for good. Now, that's a truth. But you know what happens? When we say that to someone that we have actually already been avoiding, it's just an insult. That is to say, we use truths about who God is to hide from them and act as if it's a blessing to them. 
Sometimes, and this is the third way in this passage, sometimes we even use other people's suffering for our cause. This is what the Pharisees do. Let me, let's come back to their initial interaction in verses 14 through 17. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked the blind man how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, well, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said, he is a prophet. You notice who the Pharisees are talking about the whole time in these verses? Jesus, who also happens to not be in the room. (laughs) That is to say that the Pharisees have been so desperate to find a place for their agenda, their cause to attack Jesus, that now they're more than willing to take the good thing that's happened in this man's life and use it as ammunition for their agenda. And so in doing that, They miss the man entirely. They miss the miracle entirely. They don't see it. This happens all the time in our communities. Um, We blame autism on vaccinations. We uh, blame rebellious kids on public school. We do anything we can to find ammunition for our cause, and in so doing, we miss people. Uh, This happened all the time. Again, uh, when we would see foster children, we would hear comments on how broken the system is. You know, the government is just messed up. Yeah, you know, that might be true. But you know what's actually much more troublesome is this child and the life that they are currently suffering through. That is to say that when we want to use someone else's suffering for our cause, we miss the person in front of us entirely. So why spend so much time on this? Well, it's because the passage does. I, I read this passage, and I just, I felt floored. I felt aching. Who is going to rejoice with this man? No one saw him. What is wrong? But I think part of what the Lord is showing us is how we don't see people. What's at the root in all of these, in all these responses? What's at the root is fear. And I'm in the same boat, friends. We are terrified of the pain of suffering. Terrified of the pain our suffering will bring us and the pain other people are feeling. And so we are terrified precisely, precisely because there is no easy answer. Because if I'm going to sit with you and let your grief touch me, I don't know what the rest of my day is going to be like. I got things to do. I I lose control when I begin to feel your pain, your grief, not to mention my own. And so it's the powerlessness, it's the uncontrollable grief and pain of suffering that makes us to use all our power to not be swept up into that current. The Hardens uh, gave me a book called The Life We Never Expected. Uh, It's a book written by two parents and their reflections on raising children with special needs. There's a quote on it uh, from it on... In your bulletin, inside the front cover, if you want to see it. They describe the heartache of finding out that their firstborn was severely autistic. And then they conceive another child, and they have hopes, of course, that the second child would not suffer the same. And they describe the tail-spinning heartache of realizing their second child would also be severely autistic. This is what they say. Psalm 130 begins where we are all supposed to begin when tragedy strikes. 
with weeping. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is an anguished start. It's not a careful, measured reflection on the nature of pain or an attempt to explain it. We don't even know what the problem is at this point. It's a cry from the depths, a desperate plea for mercy accompanied by red eyes, sniffling, tissues, shaking shoulders, and jowls smeared with salt water. That's where our response to suffering is meant to begin. Many of us, fueled by fears, doubts, or insecurities, want to rush in with questions. How could God let this happen to us? Advice. This must be happening because of... Or plain, silly comments. It'll be all right. But there's a place for just wailing about it, like Jesus did when his friend died, and like the psalmists seem to do all the time. That brings us to our second point. What does Jesus do in response? How does Jesus respond to this man's suffering? Just three observations about Jesus' response. First, he notices the man. Second, he trusts God with his own suffering. And then thirdly, he sends the man. So first, he notices him and initiates relationship with him both times. In fact, if you look at verse 35, after they kick him out of the synagogue, after the Pharisees kick this blind man out, verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That is to say, he went out of his way. He tracked him down. But verses 1 through 3 are even more interesting. It's likely that Jesus has just finished what was happening in chapter 8, and so he's in the temple area, a very dense, densely populated area, lots of people in Jerusalem. And they're walking along, and it's Jesus who sees the man. Jesus notices him. And then the disciples see that Jesus notices the man, and they ask, well, who sinned? And they begin their kind of normal pattern of avoiding the pain here. But Jesus defends the man in verse 3. It's not his parents or his sin or his parents' sin. God is up to something in this man's life. I wonder how many times people stopped and noticed him. I wonder how many times as well after noticing him that they would defend him as well. I'm sure it was actually quite rare. But Jesus, in spite of the crowds, sees him. And in spite of attempts to derail him and avoid connecting, Jesus defends him. What enables Jesus to notice this man out of the crowd? Here's the answer. Grief gives you a radar for other grievers. Once you've been in it, you can see it from a mile away. And you become aware and more attuned to it than ever before. And so Jesus is facing his own suffering. He is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And he entered that grief, the grief of his cross, the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb. And so now he sees, he notices everyone who is suffering like him. And he's not afraid of connection with this man. I love this. He's not afraid to touch the man's face. He's not afraid that the man might touch him back. Because Jesus has already made himself one of us. And so Jesus knows the pain of being rejected from family. Jesus knows the scrutiny of the Pharisees and the crowds. 
And so he also knows the value of being seen, of being touched and cared for in the midst of suffering. So let me just pause for a moment and speak to you directly. You need to know that God is not afraid of your grief. His spirit is not put off by your grief, by your sadness. In fact, it's the opposite. He is so intimately connected to your grief that the Bible says the spirit dwells in us. That is to say, he lives in your body. And so how could he escape? How could he not feel the grief you have in you? And so when you pray to the Lord, what's happening is the Spirit himself is feeling and sitting in your pain and is actually promoting and bringing out those prayers to the Lord. He sees you. Do you know that? He actually sees you. And he knows what's happening. And so he enters into your grief as well. So how could Jesus do this? What enables him? He's not approaching this man from a, uh, from a place of desperation. He's not frayed or uh, raw. This is not misery loves company here. He approaches the man as someone who has been suffering, but also as someone who has hope in the resurrection, as someone who is waiting for his own resurrection. And so that's the second thing I want to think about Jesus' response, is he, that he trusts God with his own suffering. Jesus says in verse 3 that this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is to say that Jesus says that God planned everything about this man's life and ordained everything including this man's suffering. Including the ways in which the evil one had marred him, God ordained for the purpose of revealing God's own works. And that is what we call God's sovereignty. But if we're honest, the question we all ask is, how can God be sovereign and ordain evil? And if you're not asking that, I, I wonder how honest we're being. How can he do that and still be good and still be trustworthy? Jesus is our answer. Because Jesus never uses God's sovereignty to avoid people. Instead, he enters into this man's life and suffering through God's sovereignty because he trusts God's sovereignty in his own life. So look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus knows what's coming his way. Jesus knows that the Father has already ordained the cross the cross for Jesus. And so I want to think about the cross for a minute here and what it is that God would ordain evil because the cross is the ultimate expression of injustice and absurdity and evil. First, the cross is a political tool of oppression. Right? What do the Romans do? If you oppose us, we torture you and publicly execute you in front of all your village, in front of all of your family. The cross was also a relational evil. Jesus is betrayed by his closest friends. His own people, his priests, turned against him. The cross is also a total perversion of justice. The one righteous man in the history of the world is falsely accused and condemned and executed like a criminal. That is injustice. 
And more than all of that, the cross is a satanic evil. It is a satanic evil because what else would we call it when creatures kill the creator? You see, this is what Satan's been up to since the beginning of the world. He has been deceiving and grooming like an abuser all of humanity to eventually rebel against God and then when they get the chance to kill him. In the cross, we see evil fully display itself in all of its pomp, in all of its power, in all of its meanness. And God ordained it. God ordained Satan to have his way with Jesus. God stood by while Satan did what he wanted to Jesus. So thinking about all this, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches in Acts 2. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's what we just said. God ordained it. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. The cross, the cross is where God's sovereignty, which ordained that evil, meets God's overcoming goodness. God raised Jesus from the dead. Evil did not win. Satan and death itself were defeated that day. And so we see in Jesus' cross God's answer to evil in the world. How can a good God let Satan have his way with this blind man? How can a good God let Satan have his way with Jesus? How can a good God let our children be malformed or our spouses die? The answer is that that same God ordained his own suffering and through it brought our life. So God never covers up evil in the world. He never excuses it. He never minimizes it. No, instead, instead, he exposes it. He exposes evil for what it is through the suffering of his son and friends, through the suffering of his people. And through Jesus' suffering, he has accomplished life in the body which will never end, which is beyond the reach of the evil one. And so that means that in your suffering as well, this is what the Lord's up to. The Lord is actively using your own suffering and transforming it to give you such a great weight of glory in his resurrection that our sufferings are transformed into God's victory over evil. That he exposes the evil one and shows that God himself is the victor. And we get to share in that. So this doesn't answer every question. Of course not. But what it does do, when we see that Jesus, God himself, suffered in our place and defeated death and rose victorious, it means we can trust him. It means he's trustworthy. And we can trust his sovereignty even in our lives. And so Jesus can see this man and he can approach him in kindness because Jesus has already entered his own suffering. And he has hopes in the good promise of the resurrection. We struggle to enter other people's suffering largely 
largely because we have not entered into our own. We have not wrestled with God who ordained those evil things in our lives. And so because we have refused to wrestle with him, we have also not found him trustworthy in the middle of it. If we would fully face the evil we have experienced, we might actually, in grieving, come to find that God is a crucified and risen God and very present even in the midst of our griefs. So, friends, if you believe in God's sovereignty, let me challenge you further. If you would dare, if you would dare to trust God's sovereignty enough to grieve the evils that have been done to you and to actually hope there in a crucified and risen Messiah, then you'll be able to sit and grieve and wait with others as they hope along with you that God will one day make all things right. And that's the hope of the world to come that Jesus is already bringing. But that hope actually begins now. It's true now. And that's the final thing I just want to think about is that Jesus sends this man. So third, how is this man and his suffering transformed and redeemed by the gospel? How is our suffering transformed by the gospel? And the answer is that we are sent as witnesses. You know, it strikes me that Jesus doesn't stick around. He heals the man and then <laughs> walks away. And this man gets swept up in the middle of this controversy. But Jesus also doesn't apologize to him. If I knew that he would have been swept into this controversy, I wouldn't have healed you. I'm so sorry. Because Jesus is not approaching this man out of guilt. Jesus doesn't coddle this man. He approaches him with bold hope for this man that God is actually at work in his life. And so instead, he lets this man experience with new eyes the same relationships and people he sees the way people act and where their loyalties really lie, but through new eyes, physically and figuratively. The man's no longer blind, but Jesus says, actually, that's true on a deeper level. Let me read 35 through 41 to you. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you have seen him. And it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, well, are we also blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This man becomes a witness of two things. He sees clearly now two things. One, the evil, the evil of the world, and secondly, the goodness of God in Christ. So God's grace comes to him in the very area of his suffering. And now he is able to expose the evil around him, but also to reveal God's kindness in Christ. And so we see him become a witness to the evil in verses 24 through 34. Let me read this. This is one of my favorite parts of this passage. So for the second time, they called the man, this is the Pharisees in this little informal trial, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, that is Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I love this. Do you also want to become his disciples? 
got a little bit of spice there. And they reviled him, saying, you're his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. By verse 30, the man has heard and seen enough. And he confronts the Pharisees. Listen, I know what you people are up to. You're hiding. He speaks, though, in his confrontation without personal ambition. He's, he's, not a, he's not even a disciple of Jesus yet. He doesn't know who Jesus is in particular. But what's happened to him is that he has become a witness to the truth. And he speaks it boldly at great cost to himself because he has experienced it. But he also becomes a witness to who the Lord really is. He comes to believe in Jesus through this process, and they have this little two-line conversion conversation, right? This is what we wish our evangelism would look like. But it's because he has come to know that God is not only a God of justice or a vaguely gracious but distant God. In fact, through his suffering and God meeting him there, he has come to know God much deeper than that. He has come to see the full goodness of God. The Lord meets him in a way that is unique to this man. He comes to know that this is a God who took on flesh and touched him. And so this man right away sees aspects of who God is that others, the disciples, myself, would struggle to understand. And so when we come to know the Lord in the middle of our grief, we are changed as we see the full glory of God, his full goodness. Because the Lord has met us in some area of grief, and so grief, and so we can begin hoping for others that he'll do the same. And so actually, like this man, we are charged and sent out as witnesses as the Lord ministers to us in our grief. You know, growing up, um, I was terribly lonely. I'm the third born, and my two older brothers are twins. So if you can just imagine those dynamics for a second. Um, lonely in my family, lonely among my friends. Uh, and I contributed to that. If you think about the way Joseph in the Old Testament kind of contributed to his brother's animosity, I certainly contributed my fair share to that loneliness, absolutely. But that actually didn't make it right. And it certainly didn't make it less impactful. Uh, because of that loneliness, I have a very deep-seated distrust of other people. Um, and that's typically what we mean by the term introvert. It means we don't trust people. <laughs> so, I spent hours on my own. I remember sitting in my room with my feet up against the wall just thinking. Does that surprise any of you? <laughs> I learned to cope and I learned to think. But when I finally became a Christian, it was actually through the realization that the Lord knew me. that he saw me, that he knew me better than I knew myself. And so I'll tell you, as much as I needed to grow in loving people, absolutely, the Lord met me in my loneliness 
and deeply bless me in ways peculiar and unique to that loneliness. You know, the Lord has given me uh, times of deep, deep joy reading his word and praying. I've been brought to tears countless times just being with the Lord alone. And that's his gift to me, that in the midst of my loneliness, he would give himself so generously to me. But does that make my loneliness in my home growing up not a big deal? No, but it's proof. It's proof that even there, even then, the Lord saw me and he met me in my loneliness. And so, in fact, in meeting me in the very epicenter of my grief, the Lord started changing me to be a blessing to other people. And I began saying that the thing missing from this passage is rejoicing. I wonder, I wonder how much rejoicing we are missing out on as well. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is that I often get to go first and sit with our dear and lovely people as they're in grief. It's a great honor to sit with you all in hospital rooms, in your homes, and uh, I often botch it. In fact, on our way down from Men's Retreat, I was talking to a friend with whom I had botched it. Uh, but recently, I had a really sweet time sitting with a particular couple who had been in a very difficult and dark season. Uh, and I don't mean that it was chatty and pleasant. I mean that we explored their grief, and we prayed, and we cried together. We cried a lot. But that was exactly where the sweetness came in. Because together we had grieved, and so now together we had each other. Do you see that? And that was a much greater gift to me. And so now I have this couple as dearer friends, people I can trust my grief to now. I can be at ease with them in a way I wasn't before. I can enjoy and rejoice with them over every other good thing that comes with them because I have been hoping with them in their grief already. And their pain isn't fixed yet. But we grieved and hoped together that God would comfort them. And so when they are comforted, I'm comforted too. I reap their comfort in my own life. And so friends, there is all sorts of joy waiting for us in each other's lives. It is right within our grasp if we would trust that our crucified and risen priest is present even there to bring about life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we love you. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness that you see us that you see the broken, that you do not hesitate to touch and even, even be touched by this man. Lord, we pray very much so that you would lead us into deeper joys, even into our griefs, Lord, and that in those griefs you would be very present with us. Lord, we long for these things because you have given us longings. And so we pray that you would make good on those promises. We pray, Lord, that you would be leading us as a congregation deeper and deeper into each other's lives. Holy Spirit, be powerfully present and at work in us this week, at pushing us and leading us beyond all of the places where we like to hide. For our joy and for your glory, we pray.
Amen.